Welcome to my Mission Is podcast. I'm Karina Givalkasov, the founder of Mission Magazine, the first fashion, philanthropic, interactive media platform. Our tagline is for fashion, for beauty, for good. If you are new to these, I do them generally with my dear friend Charlene Spiteri, the singer-songwriter from the band Texas. But she had just launched a new single. She is tied up on that presently. Our next guest we had was going to be fashion designer John Bartlett, but we decided to launch this episode ahead of that, as we've just come out with Mission Magazine, The Human Issue. Our next guest is someone that we featured in that last issue, the LGBTQIA one. I speak to Iranian human rights activist, Arsham Parzi, who fled Iran some 16 years ago. Due to his sexual orientation, it wasn't safe for him to be in Iran any longer. It's an amazing episode in which Parzi discusses all his efforts at helping people from the LGBTQ community flee for their lives out of Iran. We talk about the tolls this has on Parzi mentally and how his foundations have come to fruition and also how he juggles it all with a full-time job. Please tune in for our next episode. Thank you for always listening. Thank you for being part of this podcast. Like I said, you came to my attention on the last issue, our LGBT issue, and I've wanted to actually do a podcast with you for quite some time because of everything you're doing. I think it's so important. And as our audience and our um, our listeners grow, I, I want to bring more compelling and, and global news to, the, to them um, to understand what's going on that's just not under our umbrella of our topics. Um, and I just... So I'm very, very grateful, and and you have such an uh, an incredible journey, incredible story um, of how you fled Iran um, and what you're doing now. And I, I really want to get into that and have a talk about that. And was there a turning point um, in that that started that? I know you, in in Iran, homosexuality is illegal, and it's you have to keep it secret. And was there something that really pivoted to make you start something? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, a group of events that uh, forced me to become a gay activist. So the reason that I used force is that I didn't have any plan to become an activist. And uh, I was in a situation that there were no one else to, to talk about LGBT human rights in Iran. And uh, it was a very bad situation. And I, and I was kind of pissed off that why previous generation didn't do anything and we have to suffer a lot. And I didn't want the next generation blame me and my generation to do it. So I decided to roll my sleeves and do something. And the reason that I decided to to do something was, you know, losing one of my friends because uh, I, I felt that I'm the only person with this feeling in the in the world. There's no one else like me. And when I find out that I'm not alone and there are other people, I try to find other people in my city. And unfortunately, one of my transgender friends, her name was um, Roshanak, <clears throat> she decided to uh, end her life by eating arsenic because she couldn't take it anymore. And it was very difficult for me to lose a friend that I just found. And um, I decided to do something. And then it was in a small group of uh, you know people that I reached them and I found them online. Everything was underground. Everyone was scared. But uh, I thought that I have to create a network 
and then it ended up to the voice celebration and that we have it, you know, on, on Yahoo Messenger on, online. And uh, however, a lot of people didn't speak, but because of the circumstances and situation, but it was basically the start of our networking and underground uh, networking in order to, to be in contact with each other talked about, you know, our situation, share our, you know, ideas and lifestyle and goals and see what we can do. And what age were you when, when, when you started this in Iran? 19. My goodness. My goodness. That was really difficult, you know, when you're a teenager and, uh, you know, if I want to compare the life for LGBTs in the Western countries and Iran, you know, in the Western countries, at least, you know, if, even if, if people are not out with their families, if they have a conservative families, but at least they can find, you know, counselors, doctors, family doctors, in other organization, other people, gay bars, and etc., in order to talk to someone. But in Iran, we had none of them. And uh, it was very difficult to at least find an ear to listen to your struggles and you couldn't vent it out at all. And you had to keep everything uh, inside yourself. And that makes you crazy because, you know, you don't have any information. You don't know what's happening. Sometimes, you know, you think that there's something wrong with you. You know, I, I was, you know, doing and you know, practicing a lot of, you know, religious stuff because I wanted to, in quotation, cure myself. And, um, but it took time that I say, nope, there's nothing wrong with me. There's a lot, there are a lot of things wrong with the society, with the religion, with the other things. And uh, it's a long path and there is a long um, to-do list. We just closed our human issue and we have somebody, um, and I'm not going to say their name because I don't think, you know, I don't know if they would be, allow me to, but we have someone in the issue um, who's, who's in Iran right now going through this. Um, and they're in, they do creative and art things and, and they've gone to courts many times and their home's been threatened by the government and um, when I was researching you and what you've started and everything and one of the questions I wrote down is has anything changed since you left for Iran 16 years ago is it any better? Uh, yes and no so we had a lot of achievements um, but still we are failed and uh, the reason that I say it is that, you know, we were able to have a lot of information out in, you know, in English for the non-Iranian audience about the situation in Iran, as well as in Farsi for Iranian people who are in Iran. We were in contact with a lot of parents, families, you know, individuals. We do a lot of things for those people who escape and seek asylum. So the society, you know, I can say, change a lot compared to like 20 years ago but still you know i'm not satisfied and the reason i said we failed you know one of the examples that's happened a couple of you know days ago last week maybe you heard uh, ali reza um you know a young uh, iranian homosexual who were killed by his family so as long as this stuff happens in iran i consider myself a failure because i wasn't able to change the society and put a stop on these kind of inhuman actions. And uh, I am heartbroken and I know that there is a lot of things to do. I know, and, and, you know, and one side of the coin is that a lot of things has been done, 
but in contemporary, there's a lot more to do. And I believe that not only me as an individual, as an activist failed, media failed as well. The society failed as well. Academics, you know, failed as well. Activists failed as well, because these, we are, you know, witnessing these stuff, you know, and still it's happening. So, and it's not only about Iran, you know, we have the same thing in the other countries as well, you know, in the Middle Eastern countries. And it's not only my fight, it is the international issue. And I think all people all around the world, they have to stop for a minute and think about it, that what we could have done, but we didn't. And what we have to do, it doesn't matter that I live, for example, in Canada or United States or Europe or anything, and my life is not perfect. There's a lot of things, but still, we take a lot for granted here. Still, we are not being, um, you know, tortured or discriminated. If we do, we have, a, you know, protection as well. We can go to the police. We can, you know, go to, and we can go and sue them if someone, you know, discriminate us. But it doesn't happen in Iran. And um, this is very serious that we have to think. Yes. Yeah. I, I read, um, I actually watched a clip you said before that there's no human rights for homosexuals. Like, it's... In the news and in the media, you say they failed. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's such a is it's such a taboo subject, or it's too big a subject that people don't want to cover it or tell the truth? Um, it could be both, and I think you know the our main problem is lack of accurate information and education. And I always say that we have to educate people. We have to educate them, inform them educate them, inform them over and over and over. It's not going to end because every day we are going to face, you know, we are being facing to someone new that they have no idea and they are, you know, queer phobic and they can't accept who we are. And, um, and sometimes we have an internal queer phobia within our community. And, um, you know, it's, it's saddened me a lot when, for example, gay people are, you know, disliking lesbians and they dislike bisexuals and then it's like, oh my god you know trans i don't understand as long as we have these issues internally within our community how we can expect non-lgbt's to understand and respect us so there's a lot of things that we have to do and you know the governments you know failed as well because the government they have money and they fund you know some of the organization to do something positive but the problem is that they they prefer to fund organization that they are really established and big and huge rather than grassroots organization and one of the challenges for example our organization face is we weren't able to receive any government funding the reason is that you don't have enough capacity you don't have enough space you staff you don't have you know office Yes, we don't because we can't afford it and we have to struggle a lot, but they do prefer to give money to those organizations that they have hundreds of staff and, and it doesn't, you know, they have to reconsider. Mission is a, a not-for-profit, but we're obviously no by means um, like what you're doing. You, your work and it's your life work is so vitally important because you are saving lives. But when I started Mission in New York, um, I think it was... We started going five years ago, like really getting, trying to get funding and, and donations and everything. And I, I had the same issue that you're not big enough. What's, can you send us your P&L? What's your end of year budgets? Uh, how much money? And uh, we're not a big enough organization and it's a catch 22. Well, how do you get big if, you, if no one's prepared to give you financial support or, or make these donations? It's, um, 
But I did read though that you did do something. You raised a million dollars, Canadian dollars, in eighteen months when Marjan Foundation started. That's remarkable. Yeah, for you know the other things that you know we did for Marjan Foundation, which is basically a sister organization to the IRQR, and I'm the head of that organization, is to you know another response to the, the challenge that government caused us. And, you know, it's very bad to be apologetic on behalf of the government because they don't do enough and we have to take their role as well. And uh, because President Trump put a uh, travel ban on refugees and they were stuck in Turkey and then the the Canadian immigration, you know, pipeline for accepting refugees was, you know, overwhelmed. And there were a lot of people who were waiting to be sponsored, you know, government sponsored to come to Canada. And uh, there was another, you know, path that, you know, are always, you know, looking to find a new path in order to, to bypass what we have right now and find a better solution. And it was private sponsorship program that an organization can sponsor those refugees. And, um, you know, I decided to do it. I knew that it's a big responsibility, but um, I thought that, you know, we can do it. We have to take risk. And we were quite successful. You know, all of those funded more than a million dollars that we raised, you know, all of them was, you know, majority of them was from their family and friends who, who were, you know, open-minded. Some of them, they had no idea about the, the reason that they, you know, children are, are going to be sponsored, they thought that they are politically activists or they change their religion or something. They didn't know that they are homosexual or bisexual. Oh my gosh. And uh, <clears throat> we had to lie a lot and we have to protect their information. And sometimes they ask us, oh, why, you know, they're going to come here? And I said, it's an sponsoring. And they were waiting in Turkey for visa. So we didn't disclose anything that they applied for asylum. They were refugees because... Um, if we wanted to give them accurate information and be honest with them, um, they wouldn't. They wouldn't, you know, support them. And uh, basically, we had some cases that you know the refugees told us that their family or those people who are being um, their sponsor are okay and they're out with them, so we were fine. But most of the time, we were asked by the refugees that don't tell anything to them. Because and we were like, okay, we don't want to jeopardize your situation. And as long as they want to, to believe and be under the impression that, for example, my son is going to Canada in order to go to university, blah, blah, and I have to pay them, you know, like $20,000 and they do, fine. So we can save lives. <gasps> my God. Wow. And, um, so that was a great, you know, support. We had a couple of, you know, um, you know, people who were philanthropists and they wanted to support and they gave money to support, to sponsor their friends. Um, but their number was not a lot, but we had those people that they were not their immediate family members and they wanted to support. And uh, that was, you know, for me, comparing IRQR and Marjan Foundation and the reason that why we were able to raise funds for Marjan Foundation, but not IRQR was... Uh, Basic, this is my impression, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, for Marjan Foundation, those people were receiving a direct response and they could be satisfied because I am getting something for my son or for my niece or my nephew. But for generally, if we ask them to give a donation to support refugees, they want to say, mm, okay, yeah, I, I respect it. I support it, but thank you. That's interesting. Or maximum, they're going to say $100. And, but this, these days, you know, 
it it's it could be sad, but it on the other point that's that's okay. That people, it's you know the thing that if I give something, I had to receive something. So it's always is not give and take. It's always you know sometimes you can support the cause, but um, especially for a lot of Iranians, you know they don't have that understanding that you know I can support someone else that I have no personal relation or connection. Right. Right. I think that's a human trait, though. I think it's um, like listening to you saying you started um, voice celebration when you were nine, because that came from um, it triggered. You saw you had a reaction. You someone died. You had an, a connection to it. It was an emotional connection to it. So that led you to wanting to really act and do something. And I think that's true of if people want to give donations to their son, their brother, their sister, because they're connected to this. So having that connection to something, that feeling. I think is what triggers things and, and gets it to, um, you know, actionable things. Whereas, as you said, just to make a blind contribution, people don't do it. And it's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. And, you know, we are living in a bad time as well, because, you know, a lot of things happening at the same time. And there is a lot of important and super important causes out there and if you want to for example donate a thousand dollars so you have lots of options your heart could be close to a lot of them and then somehow you have to make a decision and you know for example there is a lot of you know syrian war that there is a lot of children there is a lot of you know people young teenager you know girls and boys that they need to be supported and on the other hand there is you know lgbt issues on the other hand there is you know for for you know poverty so for education there's a lot of things and i think again the blame is goes to the government that they don't do enough and they put the pressure on us as people and you know i always said we put them in the offices and as soon as the election is over they forget about people before the election they all about people you 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 and then it's about me 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 that's a great analogy. It's so spot on. It's so spot on. Um, how did how did international? So for anyone that's listening, the IRQR is International Railroad for Queer Refugees. How did that get started? When did you start that? Um, when you know, at the first, I had a small mailing list when we called it Rainbow Group, and then we were a little bit growing up. I you know we registered the organization under. Persian gay and lesbian organization in, in Norway with aid of one of my friends because always I wanted to have an organization in order to to be just more than me. It was uh, not in person. So however, those organization was, you know, it was kind of one man show and on a lot of organization because I didn't have other people to, to, to lend me hands. But uh, I wanted to just, you know, bring it another, you know, legal aspect on my, on my activism. So the Persian Gay and Lesbian Organization turned into the Iranian queer organization when I moved to Canada. And uh, the reason that we changed Persian Gay and Lesbian Organization to Iranian queer organization, we wanted to, you know, expand it because there's a lot of Iranians who are not Persian, either Iranian court or Iranian Arab or Iranian Baluch. So we wanted to expand and everyone was not gay and lesbian and we changed it to queer in order to have more, in order to be more exclusive. And then Iranian queer organization, you know, we focused more, we decided, we thought that 
um, refugees or other urgent cases. And uh, we changed the instructions to Iranian railroad for queer refugees because the reason that we focused on refugees was, I can put it in an example. Imagine that you're working to, to relieve poverty and provide fair food to people. And it's involved, you know, lobbying, policy changes and anything. But if someone called you right now and I said, I'm hungry, you can't tell that person, okay, I'm lobbying with the government. I hope you receive food next year. So that person needs right now. So for refugees, for us was those urgent cases that, okay, we are talking about, you know, cultural, you know, issues, information, changing the society, changing the law, the atmosphere and everything. But that's a long, long path. And if someone are at risk today, we had to do something for them today. So we Iranian railroad for queer refugees started. And the reason that we used railroad, it goes back to um, uh, underground train in Canadian histories that Canadians, you know, are proud of helping American slaves and bring them, you know, in 19th centuries, bring them to Canada through underground train and give them freedom. I said, you're not a slave anymore. You are free. Just go and leave yourself and enjoy your life. So we wanted to do the same thing. We bring those people who are at risk of persecution and bring them to a safe country and tell them you're not you, you know, you're not a criminal anymore. You are free. You can go and have your life. And um, after a while, we decided to expand a lot again and not focusing only on Iranians, you know, because then other neighbor countries like Tajiks or Afghan LGBTs, they speak Farsi as well. We could help them. And there were some Syrians and Iraqi that we, however, there is a language barrier. We don't speak Arabic, but at least, you know, we share the same, you know, ground and it's mostly religion that we are being persecuted. So we changed the Iranian railroad for queer refugees to the international railroad for queer refugees. And we were lucky that Iran and international both started with I and we didn't have to change, you know, <laughs> our website or logo. And yes. How many people work, how many are in the organization that what help you? Right now we have um, five to six board members. We are always actively looking for fresh blood and with a fresh idea, fresh information, and we would like them to, to join our QR. And, uh, you know, recently I am admitting that we need help. Why? Because I personally, you know, I was 19 right now, I'm 40. So I've dedicated basically my life to this cause. And that was, you know, I had a lot of obstacles that I have to, you know, combat and overcome as well. And right now, you know, I could build the organization, have a board members that they are, you know, they're basically supportive board members that they review everything and help us. And um, we have a lot of refugees, we have a lot of cause, we have a lot of programs. But right now, I feel that we are at the point that we need other people that they come and boost us and in order to help us to, to grow. Not It's not only financially, however, you know, Finance is very important for every nonprofit organization, but we need to have, you know, other people, you know, connections, you know, talking about us, you know, 
fundraising is just one project, writing reports, you know, talking about it, contacting their government or contacting, you know, the society, put everyone in, in contact with each other. And, um, you know, I believe in people's power and I believe that no one care about us. We have to do something for ourselves. And, um, and, and always, you know, I'm, I'm calling upon a lot of, you know, people out there that if you're interested, you can join us and uh, find a way. Maybe, maybe if some, you know, sometimes people contact me that they would like to help how I can help. And it's a very difficult question because I don't know what I have to ask them to do. And always I do love to, to have an offer with someone that I can do these things. Do you need this one or not? And I can provide you with these services. And do you need that one? And for sure we can find a way because our organization always says that I'm proud of the organization that we created because we are a modern organization. We don't have office. We don't have a lot of staffs. We don't have salaries. We, you know, because you know, our our clients basically they are in Turkey or in Iran. For example, there's no point of having offices and pay rent in Canada. And we can, you know, despite a lot of other organizations, that the first thing, you know, the traditional organization, the first thing they have to have office, they have to have desk, they have to have people. But we don't have those admin costs for everything that we have. All of the energies, money, you know, potentials, everything is goes toward the cause. And um, if you are in, in America, if you are in Africa, if you are in Asia, you can help us. So we don't need to be at the same location as well. Yeah, that's clever. I mean, you don't need as a wasted overhead money. Um, I, what I found really interesting um, your application when you fled Iran to Turkey and then. Um, got your um, system, you, you got to Canada. That was all within a year of your application. Was that is that fast for um, asylum and refugees to get? Yes, that was fast. And uh, one of the reason was that you know I was Arshan Parsi, and they expedited my process. I was in contact with the UNHCR while I was in Iran, and um, when when I had to leave Iran to Turkey. So they were expecting me. And I remember when I was in an interview, they were like, oh, we were expecting you several years ago. Oh my and, gosh. Uh, <laughs> and also when my family had to escape because they were targeted by the regime, when they uh, my family had to escape, it was like, I think um, I left in 2000. And yeah, it was like five, six years later. And uh, they had the same welcoming at the UNHCR that, oh, you know, the, we were expecting our Shams family to leave, you know, much sooner. So good luck. You know, you were lucky that you could survive for a couple of years. And uh, <clears throat> on that time, you know, there is not only because of my profile and the UNHCR wanted to expedite my process, uh, but also we had less number of refugees on that time and the UNHCR were not overwhelmed. Uh, there is a turning point in the refugee process 2015. That basically, you know, before 2015, there were around 1 million refugees in Turkey. And after 2015, especially, you know, with the Syrian issues, the UNHCR is facing more than 4 million refugees. 
and, and everything and the, their capacity remained the same. For example, you know, the UNSCR that had the same building with the same number of staff and the interview rooms and they couldn't, you know, interview more. And, um, you know, for example, Canadian embassy, it was just one embassy in Ankara, Turkey, and with two staff and, uh, with, and three interview rooms. And uh, then when the number of refugees were, you know, four times higher than 2015, they couldn't increase their capacity by four times. So as a result, the processing time became longer and everything directly and indirectly affects refugee processing. For example, several years ago, it was a coup in, in Istanbul, Turkey. It's affected refugees. Why? Because the Turkish government had an internal issue. It was a coup. A lot of people were arrested. A lot of people, you know, were persecuted, anything. And they put in a stop on all refugee processing. And they said, it's not priority. We have an important thing. If it was an earthquake in Turkey, the Turkish government has to focus their, you know, their human resources on that natural disaster. And they don't want to process refugees. Okay, just wait. And President Trump, you know, came out of nowhere and said, you know, no refugees. It's affected refugees directly. And then, you know, and then, you know, the other issues, everything, you know, all of the political shift, all of the, uh, you know, natural disaster and uh, other issues, war, international events, they affect refugees directly and directly. And right now we are dealing with the pandemic and COVID. And it's put an, an extra burden on everyone because basically everything is in a limbo situation and um, they can't. Um, you know, process them. And for a lot of refugees that we sponsored through Marjan Foundation, uh, they were accepted, they were interviewed, but still they can't do anything. They are in process. The average processing time for refugees for private sponsored was less than a year. Right now we have people that more than a year and a half, they are waiting for for interview. The reason is COVID. And you, for example, if you're on CTA and you have to come to Ankara for interview, you're being exposed by a lot of people if you want to travel by bus or train or plane, and then, you know, you have to come to the embassy. So it's not, uh, it's not something wise to do. And they said you have to stay. On the other hand, they don't issue their visa to come to Canada. However, I disagree, but I understand it. Why? Because I said, at least in Turkey, you have a roof on top of your head. However, it's difficult. But when you come to Canada, you have, or, you know, or other countries, you have to have self-quarantine for 14 days and then everything is, you know, shut down and it's difficult to find a place to rent. It's difficult to get your, you know, social insurance number, which is same as social security in the United States or, you know, get your health card and other things or find a job or go to school. Everything is basically closed and it's better to stay in Turkey rather than to Canada. I disagree, but I understand the, you know, the logic and it's affect refugees because they don't have any income. They don't have usually their family support. They don't receive any support from the UNHCR or Turkish government. They lost their job and uh, they are in a very, you know, difficult circumstances worse than before and it's an extra burden on us in order to maintain their you know not only um you know their social issues but their mental and emotional issues as well because they're very vulnerable and fragile 
And in, in last uh, year, two refugees unfortunately committed suicide in Turkey because they couldn't take it anymore. It's and and on the other hand, other hand, uh, you know. Our hands are tied because a lot of people who were supporting us, you know, financially in the past, they are facing pandemic. They lost their job. They don't have enough monies and they can't donate to us in order to help those refugees as well. So it is a very, very unique, sad, difficult and um, bad issues and circumstances. Yes, it's a vicious circle. How many, like before COVID, how many cases were you working on at a time with refugees? We are dealing um, about, you know, 2,000 refugees that they are in Turkey. And, um, and uh, you know, it's each of them, they have their special circumstances. And we for our refugee work, we only provide services to LGBT refugees. But for Marjan Foundation, uh, we are doing something else as well, because yes, we are a LGBT run organization for Marjan Foundation to sponsor refugees privately, but we sponsor non-LGBTs as well. And the reason that we decided to sponsor, you know, those people who convert to Christianity or they were, you know, other reasons or they were single mom, another is to, to change their mentality. They said, yes, we are gay, but we can help you. And we don't say no. However, we heard a lot of no and rejection by you and your fellow heterosexual and non-queer individuals, but we don't do the same. So we are turning our other side of, you know, we are turning other cheeks. So we, we want to help, you know, we were hurt by you, but we open our arms to you. And our hope is that it's affect their mentality. And I said, you know, LGBT people are not what I was taught, that they are bad, they're sinners, they're criminals, they're nice people. They even helped me to come to Canada. So we hope that, you know, it changed their mentality as well. And they, you know, changed their family and friends mentality. If they are in a group and someone talk about, you know, they talk negatively about LGBT people, they can, you know, speak out and said, no, all of them are not bad. You know, all of them, this one, you know, we receive help. And as a result, by the time, you know, we can, um, you know, provide more information to those people who are not typically our audience. Mm -mm. It must be really hard for you um, having all these cases, like who do you help? Who do you not help? it's, it's, it must be very, very tough emotionally for you to have this. It is. It is pretty. It, because, you know, uh, I have, you know, another job because I have to pay my bills. So I'm working as a law clerk in a law firm in, in Toronto. And uh, my, my work that I have income has nothing to do with LGBTs. It's mis- basically, you know, a very macho job which is for the you know the real estate transaction that we do and uh, but I have to spend a lot of time on you know on, on my job in order to have income and survive and pay my bills on the other hand I have my John foundation I have IRQR and I don't have any income from this organization but this is my passion and I this is my main job and uh, as a result the only thing that happens, like the example that I told you, those actions gonna uh, as it's gonna be resulted to the have a longer refugee pr- process. For me, is have less sleeping time, less personal time, basically you know close to none, and uh, because I have to 
unfortunately we have 24 hours per day so we can't have it more yes yes my god i had no idea you had another job as well i was just thinking doing this and marjan foundation two organizations is a lot but to have a full-time job and this is but that's why this is successful and you're getting people through borders and into canada and into onto new lives because the reward must be wonderful must be so um just a feel that feel good of you've saved someone's life yeah it is and you know there were a lot of people that you know not only through Marjan Foundation, because it's it's basically new, it's a baby organization now. But, you know, for the IRQR, who is technically a teenage organization, and, uh, you know, we, we bring a lot of people to Canada. And uh, that was a very stressful, that was a very difficult job. But when I can see them happy here on the street, however, if they don't wave or say hi, which usually happens. Um, I I am, you know, kind of relieved and relaxed that I remember those days that they were in Iran or Turkey and they struggled a lot. But right now they are holding their partner's hand. They're walking. They're happy. Some of them, they got married. And um, it's, it's a wonderful feeling that I can see the result of our work, that we basically saved someone's life and we basically grant them a new chance at life, which they didn't. And uh, again, I'm going to emphasize on the stress that we have because, you know, my, my job is very stressful and I have to deal with a lot of, you know, shocking and sad information. People call me that they are being abandoned by their families or they are being threatened by death or they are, you you know, sometimes I receive a call that, Arsham, do you have a pen and paper? What? I want you to write my will because I'm going to end my life. Oh my and, God. Oh my and God. I'm not a certified counselor. I'm not, you know, but I can't tell them, sorry, I, I don't have a license. I can't tell you why because that's something happened to them. So I have to, and they're not here that I can do something. Sometimes they are overseas. So I have to talk them down. I have to give them hope. So I'm at the same time, I am social worker. I am, you know, I'm doing advocacy. I'm doing, you know, admin. I'm doing, you know, family issues. I'm doing, you know, cultural issues. I'm doing information, lecturing, other things. So sometimes by end of the day, when you receive everything, all of this stress, you have to somehow vent it out. And, uh, and um, it's difficult. So I consider myself an active depressed person. So my depression makes me more <laughs> super active, which is good. And I hope everyone, if they are, you know, depressed, they turn into the active depression because they can use their time and energy in order, in order to, to make a change. Well, I was looking at, because um, um, I really, really related this, your Instagram with your two nephews and the joy that, that your captions some, in some of them. I have two nephews and the joy they bring me is when you're stressed, it's I just need to sit with them for an hour and just talk or hang out and it just takes so much off your shoulders which I think is so so important um for you to do because everyone needs you Arsham you know you need to look after yourself because if if anything happens you know you get exhausted and stressed and worn out it's um it stops yeah you know I'm I'm a 
family guy and uh, I'm not the kind of person who go out clubbing other things because those things for me with all due respect is wasting my time because for an hour or going to a club and having a drink and dance so I can sit at my home and do something I disagree with what I said just right now but <laughs> this, is, this is what I've been doing you know for a long time and uh, <clears throat> because you know I have to use my time and uh, but, you know, yes, you know, my family and my nephew can just, you know, at least for, for a few hours, they can take me, you know, somewhere else. And, you know, when I'm playing with my nephews and, uh, and I'm, you know, I feel responsibility for them as well. And so I feel that I, they are the next generation. I have to, you know, make them open-minded. I have to give them information. And when they grow up as someone whose uncle is gay and activist, so they are more open. They can change the society more than before. And what we didn't have when I was a kid in Iran, there were no other people around us who were um, a kind of model or uh, or you know at least we see them that they do exist so i'm happy about my nephews my you know our our next generation that at least they can grow up and see things around them and they have more choices that's how things change isn't it by educating the next generation and and putting things in in in, in front of them how do people in, in iran and turkey how do people hear about irqr do you have people on they're the active like i mean is it secret that they find out how i'm curious how they can they can google if they are you know a lot of people find us online a lot of people are being referred to us but they're you know counselors or doctors or other things and uh, a lot of times they are finding us through media and um, basically word of mouth and um, you know we never invested on advertising and making profile which we have to do i always says that we need to have a pr because uh, people has to find out about our services and our work and you know for example i didn't have time to invest you know these days social media is very important having instagram twitter facebook other things and be out there and people keep you know hearing about the cause but you know we didn't have anyone to to, to help us for these stuff. And as a result, our social media profiles, they don't have a lot of you know, other organization, you know, thousands of people. And uh, the reason is not that we're not a good cause, but we didn't have any time or anyone to, to focus on those stuff because they're always, they were more urgent think, you know, right now, imagine that right now just say, okay, I have 10 minutes. Should I talk to someone to not killing themselves or post something on Instagram? No, so exactly. For sure, for sure, you're going to do the first option. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, bringing change to the society is very, um, very important. But uh, always, you know, I believe that, you know, always I say it, and this is my 3A project, that if 3As join each other, they can bring change to the society very quickly and effectively. The first, and all of them need each other. The first A is academists. 
And, you know, the academics, someone goes to university, they study a lot, scholars, they're writing books, articles, everything. And there's no guarantee that people read their book or their information or their, you know, articles. So it's going to be sitting on their desk for nothing. Just they have their own audience, which is the other, you know, academic fellows. And the second A is activists. That the activists, they have to roll their sleeve and go to the society and talk to people and make changes. And always they need a backup. They need people are asking them, oh, it's not scientifically approved, blah, blah. An activist needs the first A, which is activist, to use those studies and articles in order to present it. No, you know, look, this is done, you know, a study. You can go and read it. It is uh, supported by the science. And these activists and academies, if they join each other and work with each other closely, they can make changes much faster. But there is a third A that we really, really need them in this time and moment because we're dealing with a lot of people who doesn't have patience to read, you know, like one page article even. And they want to, if, if there is a clip for more than a minute, they don't watch it. Usually they love, you know, like TikTok or Instagram. They prefer something less than 30 seconds and they don't focus if it's more. We need a third A, which is artist, that they join these two groups. And, you know, for years and years of work for academies and activists, they can put it in one minute clip and put it out there and people can see or listen or watch and they get the point. So always I said, if these three A's work with each other closely, they can bring the social justice and change into the society much, much faster than before. That's so clever. I was dying for you to say what the third A was. I was thinking, well, I don't know what, I don't know what it's going to be. What's he going to say? That's, that's, that makes so much sense when you explain it and break it down like that. Um, you know, I loved your quote you said when you received um, your International train, Trailblazer honour was, an enemy can defeat us or make us stronger. I think that's that's so important and so true, so true. Especially if you've got the passion and you want to do something, it's, no, I'm going to succeed. You can't let anything stand in your way. And you certainly haven't with this, Asham. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here talking and I'm thinking it's, we're going to wrap this up soon because I'm very conscious of your time. I felt very guilty in the last part oh, of this no, conversation because no. <laughs> I'm like, I felt guilty. Like, oh my gosh, we're at 44 minutes and this poor chap has given me time and it's a Saturday and I just don't want to take your attention away from anyone else that might need you, might need it more. So um, I'm going to say thank you so much. Um, I, 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 like I said in the beginning of this, this podcast, I've been wanting to speak to you for such a long time since I read your feature and, and read, um, put you in the last issue because I, I knew there was more to this that I wanted to understand and learn um, and I would love to keep in touch and, and maybe do another one a bit further along so that we can keep putting your cause and, and highlighting what you're doing to our, our audience because I think it's you're remarkable you're really remarkable and it's so selfless what you're doing it really is yeah but it's not you know it's nice of you for saying that but it's not about me I am facilitating these things so i'm not doing it so it's always it's all of us you know the thing you know you thank me for giving you time to talk to you but i have to thank you for giving your time to talk about it as well because it's not my plight it's both of us and you're doing your part i'm doing my part and the other people that they are listening to the podcast or you know for everything all of the other you know 
documentary, movies, editing. It's it them as well. So when we when we feel that it's part of me, it is for me, and I, I am a member of whole. That would be you know very important, and uh, we can make. Uh, changes. And I would like to quote one of Iranian poets that is, you know, from Shiraz, my home. And it is, uh, this is basically my motto, is saying that human beings are member of a whole. Since in their creation, they are one essence. When the conditions of the, of the time brings a member to pain, the other members will suffer from discomfort. You who are indifferent to the misery of others, it's not fitting that they should call you a human being. So this is all of us, and we are a member of a whole. And uh, whatever we do is not only for others, it's for us as well. Yes, that's lovely. Thank you. That's a great quote. No problem. Asham, I wish you a good Saturday. Arshan's story. It's really compelling to hear what he has been through and his life's mission to help others. Our next podcast is with John Bartlett, the fashion designer, animal activist. John is currently the director of the fashion department at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. I'm looking forward to this one to speak to John. Thank you for always tuning in. Take care and be well.